This episode is powered by Untold Content's Innovation Storytelling Training. Increase buy-in for your best ideas in this immersive and interactive, story-driven experience, where your teams refine their storytelling techniques for their latest projects, prototypes, and pitches, plus get inspired by 25 epic examples of impactful innovation stories. Learn more at untoldcontent.com slash innovation storytelling training. Welcome to Untold Stories of Innovation, where we amplify untold stories of insight, impact, and innovation. Powered by Untold Content, I'm your host, Katie Trout-Taylor. Our guest today is Drew Boyd. He is a global leader in creativity and innovation. He guides teams, businesses, and governments to deliver breakthrough results. He is the author of the book, Inside the Box, A Proven System of Creativity for Breakthrough Results. He's also the host of the Innovation Inside the Box podcast, which is a really insightful podcast I love following. And his forthcoming book is Adding Prestige to Your Portfolio how to use the creative luxury process to develop products everyone wants. Drew, thank you so much for making time to be on the podcast. Uh, Thanks, Katie. It's great to be here. Something I didn't mention in your bio is you are also the author of a book that I read when I was an emerging graduate student looking for a, a job as a professor, which is the book, So You Want to Be a Professor. And uh, we actually invited you to be on this podcast to talk about innovation and storytelling, but I actually did not know when I sent that invitation that you were the author of this beloved book that I uh, really appreciated when I was uh, a PhD student. So thank you for writing that book as well. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a fun book. Uh, I, I actually had started it and put it aside for a while and resurrected it and just realized I had so many nice ideas in there, really good ideas about teaching and about finding a job in academia. And I went ahead and finished it. I I like that book. It's kind of my story, how I got into academia. Yes, exactly. It demystified the process for me, I think. And uh, it really helps. And I think we're both sort of uh, one foot in academia, one foot in industry throughout our right. careers. Um, but yeah. I I, uh, I started as a professor, actually. And then my business uh, in, in innovation storytelling kept growing. And so I made the tough decision to leave. And that was that was a hard decision. But I like to think I carry it with me and I'll probably go back some at some point in my career. It's great. It's It's so much fun. So much... So much joy out of being around young people and students and stuff like that. Very, very fulfilling, no doubt. Yes. Well, and I think there's so much that universities and talent can lend to the innovation community. And in the cities that are really doing a good job of syncing up their big co-innovators with their startup innovators and their their university talent, I think that there are some really impactful results coming from that kind of system level approach to creating an innovation ecosystem. And when those kind of players are more isolated, they, it seems to be much harder to get momentum to go in those cities. Yes, yeah, so I would agree, no, no doubt. And you see cities getting very organized now about how they uh, galvanize innovation by getting the entrepreneurs, the investors. Uh, you see Cincinnati doing, I think, a great job, but yeah. other cities like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's pretty advanced. Columbus does a great job. Of course, the big tech hubs like Boston, uh, have done this for you know for for many years. Minneapolis is also good, and it does. It gives people that supports system the un you know the underpinning or infrastructure. You you should see the way to 
connect all the dots. Um, yes. So it's a, it's a great, Cincinnati is a great place for the talent that I'm developing at the university uh, to feed into that system. Yes, definitely. So tell us more about your journey and sort of your, your personal journey of innovation. Well, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, I, I'm not sure, <laughs> even sure where to start. I mean, as a kid, I was a geek and you know, took, took things apart, little you know, old appliances and things like that, because I was just curious, you know, how they, how they worked and um, drove my parents crazy and my sisters crazy as a kid. Uh, so I've always been curious that way, but the, the real, the, the real innovation bug, I think happened to me in my corporate career when I was in the medical device industry with Johnson and Johnson. And it's such a fascinating business to be in healthcare uh, and with high tech medical equipment, but the, the pressure is always on to come up with new things. Uh, and that's where I got even more curious about innovation. How do you actually invent a new product? And so I, I studied and I read and I interviewed and uh, experimented in so many ways. And the, the quick story is, you know, I would get, um, I, I'd buy books that would say um, innovation or new product development yes. or, you know, something in the title. And I was so excited and I, I would go to the, to the book and I would get it right away and I would... I would open up to the first few pages and invariably there was some um, process map there. And the process map was supposed to be the, you know, the, what this whole book was going to be about. And the very first box in most of these processes pretty much all said the same thing. It said, invent idea here. <laughs> so simple so easy yeah right like boom you're just in you know idea here it was the first box in these process maps and and then i would look in the book and try to find where the you know the secret was where's the secret to how you actually innovate and there was nothing in the book there, there's a book out there a famous book by a very respected researcher don't want to mention his name but it's like a 400-page uh, book on new product development. It has maybe one page about how you actually generate the idea. Mm, and that's so a I've always been problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the the answers weren't there, and that's that uh, eventually led to my stumbling upon and discovering how patterns can be used to invent new things, and that that changed everything for me. And uh, when I when I learned about that. My my life on innovation just took a whole different turn, and uh, it's never been the same since. Yes, you know, so, something yeah. that uh, my team and I love so much about Inside the Box, which is um, really this incredible book that you authored, is you apply a method called systematic inventive thinking, and you say, how can we spark creativity and idea generation and, and do that in a way that's reliable and consistent and sort of that, that at least can, can break it down, break creativity down into something that anyone and everyone should be empowered to do. And um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more in your, your own words about SIT, systematic inventive thinking, and how, you know, how that idea, why, why that idea is so important and how innovators can use it to ideate. So it's a, it's a fascinating story that goes like this. 
For thousands of years, everyday innovators, inventors have used patterns in their inventions, usually without even realizing it. Those patterns are now embedded into the products and services you see around you every day. Think, think of these patterns as the DNA of a product or service. Well, imagine if you had a way to extract that DNA and reapply it to any product, to any process, to any service, to a podcast, to an organization, a business model. Uh, and this is the foundation of what SIT is all about. <clears throat> and the, the, the story goes that it was my co-author who did a very interesting thing for his PhD research. He studied highly innovative products initially <clears throat> to find out what made them different from one another. And what he found instead is that they have more in common, mm-hmm. that they in fact follow an underlying structure. And the, the, the beauty of this is that patterns, contrary to what we all have thought all our life, patterns are not a detractor to creativity. Structure doesn't take creativity away. In fact, just the opposite. It's, it's patterns, a structure that boosts your creative output, no matter where you're starting from, by the way. You can be a person who thinks they are zero creative. And I have had many people come up to me and say, I've, I've been told I'm not creative all my life by my, my uh, coworkers, my boss, even my mother has told me <laughs> I'm not creative. Imagine that. And, and now when they learn about SIT, They find that, in fact, they can be more creative. And so, you know, I think that's a tremendously uh, optimistic and motivating notion that you can be creative anytime you want. Uh, For me, it was was really finding, it was the epiphany, finding what I've been searching for all my life. And I like it so much because of the research behind it, The, the research that has been published in the two most prestigious journals in the world, Nature and Science. It is a, uh, a base of, of work now that has been put in practice for the last 20 plus years. And so I, I go back to what I, you know, I think sometimes could be considered one of my favorite quotes about innovation. And, and, it's, and sadly, I can't take credit for it. But the quote <laughs> on innovation is, could the greatest invention of all be a method of invention? <laughs> I love that. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And I just, I think that is so uh, profound. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. So let's break down. And, and by the way, will you share with us those two articles um, that were published in, in Nature and what was the other journal? And Science. Yeah. And Science, yeah. yeah same um, and article. Really- Oh yeah, yeah. well, we will link them in the show notes for people who Absolutely. want to read more about the evidence behind uh, SIT. But let's break it down into its sort of, I guess you'd call them functional areas or, or sort of like the drivers behind this methodology, the patterns that can emerge. Sure. Um, and it's something that I love about your book, Inside the Box, is uh, those patterns are, are very straightforward and it's a very relatable book, a, very, a book that's very empowering to, to any individual, whether you're creating um, on your own or you're leading an entire enterprise to innovate. So let's break them down. There's sort of five functional techniques inside of the SIT model. Uh, sure. sub- subtraction, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, let me describe those. So okay, thanks. Think think of SIT as a collection of five techniques, pattern based techniques, and a set of principles. Uh, the five pattern based techniques are as follows. The first is subtraction. Many inventions were created by removing a core element rather than adding something new to it. Task unification. Many inventions were created by taking a component and forcing it to do an additional job, something it wasn't originally designed to do. Division. Many inventions were created by taking the product or service, you cut it physically or functionally, and then you rearrange it back into the system somehow. Multiplication. Many inventions are created by taking a component of the product or service, you copy it but change it some counterintuitive qualitative way. And then finally is attribute dependency. Many inventions, in fact, probably the majority of inventions were created by by forcing a dependency, a correlation between two attributes. So one attribute of the product or service and one attribute of its environment are connected now. As one thing changes, another thing changes. So think of the product called transition sunglasses, these glasses change their darkness as the light outside gets bright the lens gets darker or windshield wipers in your car that speed up or slow down depending on the amount of rain that's falling attribute dependency is all around us and so the point of the method now is to use these patterns to guide your thinking to channel your your ideation for you they do the hard part uh which is why i like these so much they they lift you up no matter you know where you where you think you're creative or not, you can apply one of these patterns and get more creative. Yes. Something I really respect about this model is, um, as I was studying, my, my PhD is in rhetoric and composition. And the composition side of that, we really study the buildup and breakdown of patterns to create things. Composition, you know, in music means to create a score, to put elements together, to create a, a piece of, of music. And in writing, of course, it means assembling words or, or pieces of information in a way that builds an argument or builds a storyline. And so we we study and talk a lot about patterns of composition. And one of the favorite, my favorite uh, books actually from my field is called Understanding Writing Blocks. And essentially the, the author did significant research into like why people get writer's block, what, what makes them get stuck. And it's usually the myth of believing that writing should come from a place of like sort of spiritual awakening or motivation. You have to sort of wake up and have this epiphany and then sit down and write it. And really the research showed it's the people who show up every day and they write for a certain number of hours, a certain sort of time in the seat, if you will. And they repeat, you know, they, they utilize certain patterns in order to activate and spur on their creativity for writing. Um, anyway, this all reminds me so much of, of this practice. It's really about having tools and, and patterns that you can attempt to follow and to provide structure and then to continue to commit to that time and structure for, in this case, ideated, ideating innovation. Um, but also it could be applied to the way that stories are crafted as well. No, no doubt about it. it so two quick stories that uh, sort of jump on what you're uh, talking about. 
Katie, is the idea of uh, Agatha Christie. So Agatha Christie, right? Here's a, a woman who wrote 63 murder mystery novels. Every one of them has the exact same structure inside, the exact same pattern. You read her, her novels, you know it's going to happen, right? It's the same pattern. Here's what happens. The, the, somebody walks in, there's a dead body. Uh, they, they scream, they call the detective. The detective starts to interview all the people around them. All of them have a motive and, a, and, a, and an opportunity to kill this person. They try to put all the clues together. And in the final scene, the detective announces who the killer is. And it's the person you least suspect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, one of the, yes. what's, what's amazing about Agatha Christie, she has sold more books than anyone on the planet. But you look at other successful authors, uh, Daniel Steele. My, my mother reads every Daniel Steele novel, novel she can get her hands on. And those books, too, have a familiar structure. Every one of them is basically the same structure. And Daniel Steele, I think, maybe is the fifth best-selling uh, novelist of all time. So structures matter. Uh, tools of the brain, cognitive tools, I like to think of them as prosthetic devices for the mind. Uh, <laughs> just like that. you'd have a prosthetic arm or prosthetic leg, why not a prosthetic for your brain as well? And that's what these tools do. They lift you up. I love that. So, yeah, I'm even thinking, too, of William Shakespeare, right? None of his uh, sort of plot lines were new to the audiences that, he, that they were performing for. Um, they were all drawing on well-known ancient Roman or Greek mythologies and tales, and yet mm -hmm. he would subtract a character, add in an element that would be of surprise or relevance to his time. Um, and so, so yeah, this is, this is something that even the most renowned authors of all time have followed. Could you, could you share, um, could you share this concept of inside the box and right. the sort of, why is that a powerful metaphor for the way that we should be thinking about innovation? Sure. So inside the box is a uh, play on words from the, the much more familiar term, thinking outside the box. And maybe before I, I explain inside the box, let me tell you about that phrase first, thinking outside the box, because it's so popular. It's, yes. you know, it is the ubiquitous universal catchphrase for all creativity. What, what the story is, where this phrase comes from, is a, a famous study that was done in the 1970s by a researcher named P.J. Guilford. And what Guilford did, he, he took a, a, a very well-known puzzle called the nine-dot puzzle. And so for your listeners that are not familiar with this puzzle, let me, let me explain it. Imagine nine dots arranged in three rows of three. And your task then is to take a pencil and with just four straight lines, connect all nine dots without lifting your pencil. And it's tricky. It's a hard, hard puzzle to do. Um, if you don't believe me, sit down <clears throat> and draw out nine dots and see if you can do this. Now, there's a secret to this puzzle that makes it a lot easier. And that secret is you, you take your pencil and on one of the lines, you extend your line well outside the imaginary box containing those nine dots. You, you draw outside that box. And that gives you an angle then to come down and pick up a couple more dots again outside the box and then you complete the puzzle. And anybody that's done this puzzle knows this, this little trick. 
it's a it's clever to you know just amaze little kids if you want want to pull a prank on kids. But seriously, what Guilford then concluded from that research was profound. He said, you know, if we could just get people to think like this, think outside the box, they could be more creative because only 20% of people could solve that puzzle. What people don't know is this. Right right after Guilford did his study, two other researchers replicated his study, added a second group though. The first group of participants got the same instructions that Guilford gave his people. The second group got the same instructions as the first group, plus the added instructions that to solve the puzzle, you had to draw your lines outside the box created by the nine dots. They essentially got the answer. And in the first group, just like Guilford, 20% could solve the puzzle. But Katie, what do you think was the success rate in the second group? Oh, much higher. You would (laughs) think it was much higher, right? Right. 20%. Really? No change. Thinking outside the box is a complete myth. And I, I, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but techniques like brainstorming have been shown through 60 years of research not to work. Here's why. When you think outside the box, uh, here's what's happening. You're sending your mind out into this vast, unconstrained area. And the mind can't handle it. It suffers what we call idea anarchy or idea chaos. The, the space is too big. This imaginary outside the box is too, too big. We have shown that better thinking happens when you constrain the mind in a well-defined area, which I'll describe in a minute. By doing that, you force the mind to work harder and smarter. Uh, you'll hear the principle of constraints, where constraints, in fact, are a uh, a, a bonus to you. They're, they're a driver of innovation. So think inside the box was my, my co-author and I, Jacob, Jacob Goldenberg. He's the one that coined the phrase. He said, let's call it inside the box. And uh, it was, it was uh, funny. He had just asked me if, we, if, if I wanted to write a book with him. And um, it was like proposing marriage, right? He goes, hey, let's write a book. And I said, sure. And I was getting myself into it. And he says, let's call it inside the box. I'm going, all right, that sounds great. It, now it is becoming a much more popular phrase. People are starting to realize the value of it. And, and to, to complete the story, we actually capture that as one of the important principles in the method systematic and inventive thinking. It's called the principle of the closed world. And if you'd like, I can describe it a little bit more. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, well, the, the closed world principle, uh, and this is a little trippy, so let me <laughs> let me <laughs> warn people to 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 get ready for this because uh, this the story goes like this. The closed world principle says the following, that the further away you, you have to get a, go to get a solution to your problem, the less creative it's going to be. The closer you have to go to get a solution to your problem, the more creative it's going to be. In other words, there's an inverse relationship between the proximity of the problem to the solution and its level of creativity. What the closed world is, is the box. It's, it's this imaginary boundary that you draw around your situation. And you force yourself to say, I'm only going to find an answer inside here somewhere. My answer has to come from here. And by, by sort of artificially 
restricting yourself to this zone, this imaginary zone, you'll end up with a more creative solution as opposed to having to go outside to get it. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you look at the, uh, your car in the rear window of your car, you're likely to see small wires running through it, very faint, distinct wires running through the rear window. And most people, especially in cold climates, know what that's for. They know it's for the def defrosting that rear window. Uh, but what most people don't know is those wires also serve as the antenna for your, your car radio in many cars. And so it's a very clever solution of how something right in the vicinity, instead of creating a new antenna, the designers harness something that was already there into what what's, would be considered a very clever solution. And so, and so the closed world principle is, is very profound. Uh, and I'll, I'll, let me punctuate it with one, one more story here. I have a, a, a very good client that is in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, they came to me one day and they said, Drew, you know, we'd really need your help. And I said, what's the problem? And they said, well, we make a drug for diabetes and we're trying to get more people, you know, more of a business in China. And I said, well, what's the problem? And they said, well, China, it's so big. And, you know, there's you know, almost 2 billion people. Where do we start? And I said, well, okay, let's, and I knew right away they had a closed world problem. I, th this was so apparent. Anytime a team starts to tell me they're struggling, I immediately think closed world. Have they really defined where they are? So I said to the team, look, let's just pick one city, one city in China. And they said, Shanghai. <laughs> I said, well, that's 26 million people. Let's, why don't we find a city a little you know, smaller in the interior, maybe something the size of Cincinnati where I live. Uh, something around, you know, 2 million or less. And they're scratching their head. They're looking at me like, Drew, what, why would we do that? You know, just stick with me. I said, I want to go even further. Let's go out into the suburbs of the city. Let's imagine we're in a small community like where I live in a, in a town called Mason, Ohio, 20,000 or so. And, and so um, that now they're really confused. And I said, guys, I want to take it even further. Let's imagine we're going to one neighborhood in just, in just this one neighborhood. In fact, let's, let's imagine we're going to one street in this neighborhood. Well, let's go all the way. Let's imagine we're looking for one home, <clears throat> just one home on this street with one man, age 50, with type 2 diabetes. <laughs> They're looking at me like I've gone crazy. And I said, guys, now, and I want you to do the following. I want you and your team to sit down right now and figure out how to get your, your diabetes drug into his body every day at the right dose, just for him. And they looked at me and said, why? I said, if you can't figure it out for this one man, how to get your drug in his body every day for him, what makes you think you're going to be able to do the rest of China? But if you can figure it out, all the supply chain, logistics, shipping, all the pharmacy relationships, needle disposal, uh, drug delivery, everything, you know, just for him. Then, then allow yourself to go to another house 
and get it set. Go to another street and get it all figured out. And go to another neighborhood and another town and you get the story. So, so grow from within. Define that closed world very tightly, very narrowly. And you're going to give yourself the gift of, of inside the box thinking. Yes. Yeah. That is incredibly powerful. Did, so what were their next steps? Were they able to start identifying supply chain in that region? Immediately. Yeah, of course. Immediately. If it was just one person, they, they could see it. They said, well, okay, here's what we have to do. And, um, and then, then the, right. The, the proverbial light bulb started to come on, right. They started to realize that all they had to do was build one. And I've, I've done this exercise many times, uh, at the University of Cincinnati, where I teach, for example, uh, I'll be dealing with, the, for example, our very fine College of Music, the, the College of Conservatory of Music, CCM, which I'm, I'm willing to bet you've heard of. It's yes. a great school, wonderful dean, uh, Dean Stanley Romanstein, uh, and his executive committee. They're they're great. They're fabulous. I just love them, and they they call on me a lot, and I. I helped them. I helped them recently with the admissions process. They have a very complicated admissions process because of their, the spots very are, competitive. Yeah, yes. very competitive, and the spots are, are uh, very few. And their their process was just enormously big and and bulky and awkward. And I I said let's you know let's get it down to you know it's like find your one man with diabetes on that one street. Let's get it down to one student. Figure it out for one student. Or, for example, a local high school here, a uh, school called Moeller High School, uh, it, the, 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 the team there, the principal and the executive staff there were struggling with what to do in COVID. How do we give the incoming freshmen, these eighth grade boys, uh, it's, a, it's a private uh, Catholic school, and um, how do we give the boys the same experience? And I said, let's figure it out for one. Let's let's get it down to one. Figure out the freshman experience for that one incoming freshman and then grow from there mm-hmm. as opposed to think about the whole incoming class becomes a little overwhelming. So mm-hmm. it's a powerful way for anybody just to narrow your choices. Don't expand your choices. Narrow yourself down to a constrained area. You're going to get better, clearer thinking when you figure out the lowest common denominator, and then expand from there. I think this is an interesting practice to try around innovation storytelling. So if you are at the point where you are needing to communicate either an innovation idea or the impact or results of an end stage gate innovation outcome, no matter what part of the stage gate or innovation process you're in, Having an experimentative and iterative approach to how you storytell and get buy-in and communicate that innovative work, I, I, I'm curious about how we can apply this kind of inside-the-box thinking to storytelling. And so I, one of the things we do in our innovation storytelling trainings with corporate teams is we ask them to distill it, just like you said, distill it down. What? How is this going to impact someone at the individual level, your key audience at the individual level. Now think about it, not just externally, but internally. How is this going to impact your operations team and specifically the person on the front line or specifically the manager or the leadership? And so having this really intimate understanding of audience, I think is really 
really critical, not just to the actual art of innovation, but then the art of storytelling and communicating that innovation. It's a, um, it, it, it's a, it's an extremely powerful part of an innovator's tool set. Um, and I'm running across this all the time with my clients who, once they learn to innovate, it creates another problem for them. How do they get acceptance within the organization? And I, I, um, I teach the psychology of persuasion as part of that, how to overcome resistance. But within those, those persuasion principles is the idea of stories. They are the engine. They're the, the carrier, so to speak. Uh, the bottle with the story inside. And uh, to use some metaphors here, I'm getting carried away. Just stop me anytime, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I love metaphors. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it, and here's what's uh, true is that innovators face resistance right away. In fact, resistance is a, a natural part of innovation. Innovation and resistance essentially define each other. Yes. Yeah. It's so scary. The fear of failure can be fear so fa- overwhelming. Many fears. Many. There's many fears. Mm-hmm. Fear of failure. Fear of success. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. No. Fear of success is probably even worse. What? Do, oh my God. If we. What are we going to do? Yeah. What are we going to do? Yeah. Oh, see it all the time, and I see organizations and and uh, people in organizations see something becoming successful and realize it's a threat. To, to what they were doing to the to the old guard, you know, the status quo, and they actively go out of their way to uh, to, to stop it. So stories help innovators bring clarity. Some ideas, great ideas, are resisted simply because people don't understand them. Yes, and it can be a. Here's what's interesting: it can be a very simple idea, but very complex to communicate. Yep. It can be a very complex idea that's extremely simple to communicate. So, for example, if I said to my my 90-year-old mother, God love her, I said, hey, mom, Amazon's going to deliver packages with drones. She would go, cool. Hey, that, that's great. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm going to start seeing these things flying. I mean, she immediately gets it. Yet drone delivery of packages is an extremely complex, many moving parts infrastructure, regulations, there's so much complexity to it. But the notion itself is instantly understandable by anybody. Drone package of deliveries. You can have a very simple idea that is extremely complex to to communicate. So in many diseases, for example, you explain how a drug works. (laughs) You take this drug and um, it's going to, you know, clear up this, this disease, this condition. Um, or and you try to explain the workings of some te- like tech, a lot of technology could be extremely <clears throat> uh, complex or or very simple, but still very complex to explain the, all the moving parts. For many years, cloud storage, you know, was a very confusing element to it, and and it, it was a lot of it in the terminology cloud. Right, right, right. Where, where are the clouds? You know, send in the clowns, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> carried away here, Katie. <laughs> but the, but well, the, I, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no. So, so stories help innovators bring clarity to simple or complex scenarios. 
I, I love what you're touching on here because I, if you were to go on a thought experiment with me for a moment and we were to just brainstorm how the five techniques of, of systematic inventive thinking might be used not just to help an innovator create new ideas and bring creativity to, to their innovation process, but actually help guide them in the way they storytell and communicate around the innovation too. That's kind of the thought experiment I want to I want to riff on with you. And I know I'm putting you on the spot. We didn't pre-prepare for this part of the conversation. But if you notice, for instance, one thing that's coming to my mind is you've tried to pitch the idea to the stakeholder internally that needs to buy in and you didn't have traction. Is there a way you can go back to the drawing board and take that story or that narrative that you tried to pitch and use the technique of sub- subtraction? break it down into parts and experiment and attempt to get additional feedback and, and change your strategy. You know, subtraction works as a technique when you remove a core element that, that is essential. And so storytelling, you would imagine taking out the plot or taking out the main character. Yeah. Switching the Um, character. It could, yeah, it could all of a sudden you remove that element and bring maybe some simplicity to it. Maybe you let people see a new value, a new benefit that wasn't there before, which is what subtraction mostly does. It, it's not about taking cost out. Subtraction, that, that technique is about removing something so you can see new benefits you wouldn't have seen before. Yes. Another, another technique here for cre- being more creative with your storytelling would be division cutting the story up into parts and rearranging it. Yes. And so you tell the end of the story first, or you tell the middle of the story last or something. And by rearranging a story, it could land differently, land potentially better with, with, with a better outcome. And this is where the patterns, we go back to these idea of patterns, how they can be used to see things in a more creative light. There's no question in my mind uh, that stories can be uh, developed this way. When we wrote our book, Inside the Box, we were very fortunate to have an editor work with us named Alice LaPlante. Alice is a creative writing instructor at Stanford. Very talented lady. I bet, yes. (laughs) Great to work with. But she wrote a book uh, about, a textbook about creative writing. And she said to us, during the project, she says, you know, I'm learning so much from you guys. I'm going to embed some of these tools in my, my next edition of this book because she could see how they could be applied to writing, chapter writing, storytelling. Uh, I, I know, for example, if you were writing a poem, can I, can, I got to tell a story. Yeah, tell, yeah, tell yeah, a story. yeah. Absolutely. I was <laughs> so, a creative writing major, this, so. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't told this story for years, but many years ago when my son, I, I want to say he was <clears throat> seventh grade, and he came home one day on a Monday, and he had this long face. And I said, I said, buddy, what's wrong? And he looks down, and he says, oh. I have to write a poem. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a, I have my own story. I remember walking into my mom's bedroom with the same long face and the same yeah. assignment. I think I was probably nine years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Not, terrifying. I forget, I forget something. <clears throat> but he, he had this long face and it was poetry week. And I remember 
how dreaded Poetry Week when I was a kid. I I wrote this poem about birds, and it was it, I'm still stigmatized by it. <laughs> so so I said to him, I said, look, uh, son, if if I can give you any advice, it's <clears throat> start now, because if you you know if you wait to the end of the week, you're going to be in in you know bad shape, and I you have to write it yourself. You can't you know no can't go out on the internet. Well, Thursday night, we're all sitting at dinner and he still had this long face. And I looked and I said, well, son, how's your poem going? Dad, And he he just, you could tell right away from the body language, he was stuck. And I said, are you serious? You haven't written it? He goes, no, I I don't know what to write. And he's, you know, you have to understand this kid was a, he was an athlete. He played uh, hockey and just for boys, you know, writing a poem just seems so, so not, not cool, right? It was not just not a cool thing to do. I, I said to him, look, I'm going to help you, but I'm going to help you in this sense. I'm going to give you a tool to help you be creative. And what we did is we took the, I said, pick a subject, closed world. And he said, well, hockey. I said, okay, a little too big. Let's pick one part of hockey, just some event or something in so he says, getting a penalty. And for those non-hockey play, uh, fans or knowledgeable, if a, if a player pushes a player down or does something bad, they get a two-minute penalty and they have to sit off the ice for two minutes in what's called the penalty box, or uh, its nickname is called the sin bin, the sin bin. So he, he's picked a penalty. And I said, all right, now list out the steps of getting a penalty. And he did. He listed the, the, the steps, uh, the infraction, the ref blows the whistle, the arm goes up to, to indicate a penalty, the, the player skates to the, to the penalty box, the, the coach of the player glares at him with a mean face. And it's, he's a kid, right? And he's, he's internalizing the steps of, of getting a penalty from a kid's point of view. It was hilarious. <laughs> then we took the tools of poetry, onomatopoeia, personification, alliteration, and we laid one tool by each step. <clears throat> and then I said, now take that tool and take that step and create a sentence. And he did. And he, he created a poem called The Sin Bin. Now, here's the funny part of the story. I love the poem so much. He turned it in. He was so happy. Um, but I, I wanted to turn the poem in. I wanted to submit it to a, a magazine here in the U.S. called American Hockey. It's a, it's a, a magazine for kids that, that are in the sport, kids and parents. And I told him I was going to submit it. He went, no, don't, don't submit it, please. He, he was worried that his buddies would find out he wrote a poem. And he was so... Um, embarrassed, and I said, "No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll change your name. I'll, I'll, I'll submit it." So I did. I submitted it, and we used this phantom name that we use around our house. This, this, it, just this imaginary person named Hector Gazinski. <laughs> so I sent this poem in. It was published like six months later. The Sin Bin by Hector Gazinski, Ryan <laughs> Boy, uh, or no, I, I'm sorry, not Ryan Boy. Hector Gazinski, age or a grade seven, Cincinnati, Ohio. Wow. And, but then people in Cincinnati and the hockey community were like, who's the Gazinski family? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that. Yeah. How incredible. But but I love the story is so powerful because it's true that it, giving constraints actually enables more creativity. Um, at the end of the day, that's, I love that story. It, it, it portrays that so beautifully, whether that's for the writing process or the communication process or the art of inventing the idea itself. Yeah. This is, it's just a truth. And so what's, what is one piece of advice or an, an activity or an exercise that you would say listeners uh, of this conversation can, can do after listening to this podcast, what should all of us try to do some kind of like a exercise that's going to promote or reinforce yeah. some of these ideas? I'm going to give more than one, but okay. I would tell you, I would tell people to take note of the things around you that just catch your attention from a creativity point of view. You see something in a magazine or you see something online or you see something, you know, in your kitchen or at a, at a store. If it's creative, take time to look at it and ask yourself, why do I think this is creative? What, what's the, What's the secret inside that makes me think this is creative? No one's going to judge you. You don't have to get anybody's approval. Just kind of take a minute and look to see if you can see an underlying structure to it. Then start to do this more often. I'm willing to bet what's going to happen. You're going to see commonality. You're going to see some common themes. And when you get to that point, you are well on your way to getting this idea of, of systematic creativity, that there is an underlying structure to the things that are creative around us. That simple act alone will help people realize that the creative world is really about structure and that they can leverage it too. Once you see that pattern, ask yourself, hey, is there any reason why I, I couldn't use that pattern as well? Next time you're doing something, next time you're fixing something or working on a work project or a school project. Can you use that same pattern? And of course the answer is yes. Pattern spotting is one of the, one of the skills that I teach my students and my corporate clients, pattern spotting. Notice the patterns around you as a way to then leverage them and use them yourself. Yes. I love that exercise. It's, it's giving me all kinds of ideas. I think even noticing the design on a product um, for one application and thinking of how to repurpose it for a completely different application. So what was it that caught our eye about that design? That's a, that's great advice. You, you said you had some others as well. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, if you're willing to share, I'm, I'm sure, going to, sure. I want to listen. You know, I, I think um, pattern spotting for, for sure. I think the other thing too is uh, start thinking closed world. When you get ready to tackle something, remember that story about you know the one man with um, type two diabetes on one street. Find that one house with type. So I, I when I tell the story, I tell my clients find your one man with with diabetes, and um, as a as sort of a metaphor for their problem. And so whether you're in a work situation or a home situation, or just out and about, narrow your options. You're going to actually find more creative solutions, uh, not less. Uh, and, and the third piece of advice, I, this will come as a big bummer to people, but you know, I, I mentioned brainstorming. Brainstorming as a term really will never go away, but the underlying idea of brainstorming is this idea of thinking outside the box, unconstrained. Don't do that. Constrain yourself. Uh, don't use formal brainstorming as a as an ideation technique. It's been shown to actually do more to damage your ideation than help you. 
So, so think inside the box. Um, unless you're <laughs> one of my favorite cartoons is the New Yorker cartoon where they show a cat about to get into his litter box, and the owner is like, "Don't think." Do not think outside the box, <laughs> telling his cat, <laughs> make sure he stays in the litter box. <laughs> I love that. I love that. A couple of thoughts that came to mind as you were sharing that advice at Untold, when we are collaborating uh, and generating ideas together, we we refuse to call it a brainstorm. We call it a creation storm. And it typically yep. looks like actually building a program or a document together inside of Google Docs or some other kind of collaborative yep you know, system where we're, we're literally building it together in on video chat at the same time. And sure. So create together, don't necessarily just, uh, ideate. Yeah. No, look, creativity and innovation, it's a team sport. And, uh, one of the old ideas of build on the ideas of others, it's, it's a powerful notion. It, it's, it applies to whether you're applying SAT or any method. So I'm a big fan of that. Uh, we're better together. More brains are better together they end up with a better solution than one brain. Yes, yes. And the other the other thing that came to mind as I was listening when you said uh, be a pattern spotter is our team last year looked at about a thousand different innovation stories and broke them down into some key patterns. So innovation story patterns. And we share this in our training, um, which I can link to in the description box as well. So wow. I think starting to notice what types of patterns emerge? For instance, uh, the garage guru and the uh, the failure narrative. There are many different variations um, of that, and you know, also the uh, the sort of surprise discovery. There are just patterns that have already existed and really worked to gain traction. And so, if you can turn to those first, if you're feeling wow. overwhelmed about how to communicate around your innovation, that might be helpful. Well, I tell you what, I love anytime I do something like an interview or video or uh, teach a class, I like to learn something too. I'm really there to learn something. And Katie, you just told me something I didn't realize. And now I'm going to be very curious to learn about. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I'll share it with you. I'm I'm so grateful for this conversation, Drew. Truly, I learned so much, um, even beyond what your book taught me, which I also loved. And I highly recommend Inside the Box. Um, and I'm really excited for your forthcoming book, Adding Prestige to Your Portfolio, How to Use the Creative Luxury Process to Develop Products Everyone Wants. What an awesome title. Thank you so much, Drew, for making time. Where can our listeners find you? Easiest way to find me is at drewboyd.com. And that will link to all my uh, other things, my video courses on LinkedIn Learning, podcast, books. Um, <clears throat> you can always, always find me at the University of Cincinnati. Very easy, pretty easy to find out there actually. So, and I'd love to hear from your listeners if they have questions or ideas. Uh, don't hesitate to contact me. Wonderful. Thanks so much. I hope you have a wonderful week. You Talk as to well. you soon, Drew. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on social media and add your voice to the conversation. You can find us at Untold Content. 